This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5 p.m. in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Eddie van der Volt this evening. Quick market check because I kind of want to set Eddie up and get him to kind of give us his ideas on what today looks like. Nasdaq down and down hard stateside, down by 1.7%. FTSE down by 7 tenths of 1% today, but the CAC here in Paris actually positive at the close. Uh, we'll talk about the French election in just a moment. We've seen yield shooting higher. The German 10-year in particular up by 10 basis points today. So bonds selling off. And we've got crude coming down really quite sharply. Brent crude down by 3.84%. Eddie van der Volt, give us your pick of all those assets. What is going on today? Yeah, you know what? I think when I look at the the, the losses in, in, in tech and the rise in yields, I think it still tells me that this market is very much driven by the central banks. It is still a function of the Fed. And I think if anybody was hoping to ease, you know, into Easter, into the Easter holidays, I think that would be a mistake I, because yeah. I think I think I think that we we've still got a lot of trading to do this week before we get to the holidays. I, I quite like the idea of easing into Easter. That sounds like a very <laughs> nice idea. So if you're disabusing me of that of that concept, I, I am deeply upset about that. But yeah, certainly Monday's turned out to be a little bit more bouncy than I anticipated. You've also got the China story in the mix as well. They've got a big COVID problem. That's having a big impact into the crude market as well. And we've got CPI data coming up out of the United States. Huge week for inflation. So, yep, maybe it's a little early for the Easter eggs. We'll get there, though. End of the week, they're certainly coming. Let's get the headlines now. Charlie Pell. I thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. European Union nations are urgently calling for more weapons, including armored vehicles, to be shipped to Ukraine as soon as possible. Poland's prime minister is predicting Europe will soon see its biggest tank battle since World War II. Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer became the first uh, European Union leader to visit President Vladimir Putin in Moscow since the start of the war and asked him to end it. And Prime Minister Mr. Johnson was in Ukraine over the weekend to meet with President Vladimir Zelensky in person in what Downing Street described as a show of solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Zelensky, meanwhile, says Ukraine expects Russia to widen its offensive in the east this week, while a new commander for the Russian troops on the ground is raising alarm among U.S. officials. Boris Johnson has rejected calls from National Health Service officials for new measures to curb the spread of coronavirus, saying hospital data don't justify shifting from the UK plan for living with COVID. That is the latest stuff from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Mr. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed, sir. Uh, let's focus on what's happening in France. President Emmanuel Macron set to face Marine Le Pen in the final round of the French election. We had the first round this weekend. Basically, it's a rerun of the 2017 contest. It's going to have huge implications for the whole of Europe. So Emmanuel Macron, 27.6% of the votes. Uh, Le Pen gets 23.4% of the vote. That's enough to send both of them through... The real question now is, all of the people that didn't vote for these two people, how are they going to vote in the second round? And how will it go uh, on the, uh, the, for the TV debates on the 20th as well? Well, let's go to Paris now. Bloomberg's Carolyn Conan is standing by. Carolyn, the financial markets seem to have taken the result we got out of this weekend as a positive. The, basically, what we're looking at here is a more certain path 
for Emmanuel Macron to retain the Elysee. Is that what's being talked about in France? So if you look at the polls from after the first round last night, you actually had a few polls saying that uh, Emmanuel Macron would get uh, between 52 and 54 percent of the votes in the runoff in two weeks' time on April 24. So technically, uh, the gap wouldn't be as narrow as we had anticipated uh, last Friday. But there is still a chance, of course, that Marine Le Pen could be elected if the abstention is high, if the center-left voters uh, abstain in the second round. And also, uh, of course, Marine Le Pen is going to try and get out there and get the hard-left voters of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, this candidate who came actually third uh, in this first round, in fact, he only had about 420,000 votes difference with Marine Le Pen. You know, to me, uh, Caroline, we see we see Le Pen picking up momentum every time there's a French election. And it, it just feels like, if not this time, it's going to happen at some point. So I want to ask you, what are the conditions? What What will it take? What needs to happen in France for her to take that extra step and really be successful? Is there is there anything that could trigger it this time around? So I think this time around is quite different from uh, 2017. Uh, the delicate phase for investors is going to be now because last time you had a landslide victory of Emmanuel Macron in the runoff. He had 66% of the vote. So in any case, all the polls show it's going to be tighter uh, this time around. Then, uh, of course, you're right. Uh, every time there was uh, either Jean-Marie Le Pen, her father back in 2002, or Marine Le Pen in 2017 in the runoff, there was a so-called Republican front, a sort of unity across the traditional political spectrum to prevent the extreme from getting into power. But today, the difference is that some uh, opponents are actually call calling for anyone but Macron. So a different kind of coalition, and that would obviously mean that Marine Le Pen has got a wider electorate. If you look at the yeah. traditional right wing, uh, also uh, Valérie Pécresse uh, performed very poorly, less than 5% uh, of the vote. So, uh, of course, that means that Emmanuel Macron doesn't have so much. He really needs to turn to the left in order to widen his base. Caroline, what are both candidates going to try and do between now and the second round? What do you think the tactics are going to be? So the tactic of Emmanuel Macron is going to be uh, hitting the campaign trail, which is something he hasn't been able to do because he was so busy on the diplomatic front with the war in Ukraine in the months leading up to the election. And this is actually what Marine Le Pen has been accusing him of not being present in the campaign, not participating in debates, not hitting the campaign trail, not meeting the real French people, this working class blue collar electorate that she actually has been meeting over the past six months, traveling uh, up and down uh, the country, unlike uh, Emmanuel Macron. So that's going to be his strategy. We've also heard from some of Macron's supporters today who have uh, started the offensive in the French media, pointing at Le Pen as an ally of Vladimir Putin, something that she's been uh, trying to uh, hide over the past few weeks, even though uh, she has met with Vladimir Putin in the past. She had a loan from a Russian bank in 2017. So this is also going to be part of Macron's strategy uh, to kind of uh, show that Marine Le Pen, even though uh, she is, might not seem as scary as her father, she is not mainstream. It is not the same thing 
uh, to have the national rally uh, in the in the Elysee yep. Palace. Then I just want to know, do you think that that strategy is going to be effective, Caroline? Do you think that, uh, you know, Macron seems to be the only person in Europe that Putin speaks to? Um, does is, is this not something that Le Pen could use to, to, to her advantage? By saying, listen, Put, Putin might listen to me. I might be able to talk to him. So is this really the sort of mud that can stick in an election? Well, initially, you know, the war in Ukraine actually had benefited Emmanuel Macron because he had this rally around the flag effect. Uh, and then it turned into uh, the concerns of uh, about inflation and the issue of purchasing power. Uh, and Macron was described as a... Uh, naive because he met with Vladimir Putin, he met with uh, Zelensky early in February before the war started, uh, but then he hasn't really managed to achieve anything. Uh, so on the diplomatic front, uh, Marine Le Pen is yeah. actually uh, had a picture of Vladimir Putin on her, on her leaflet uh, showing that she was uh, meeting with uh, various leaders across the world. So perhaps that strategy is not necessarily going to pay off. He is going to yep. also have to uh, really appeal to some uh, left-wing voters in this matter. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how those left-wing voters ultimately decide to cast their ballots or not in the second round. Caroline Conan in Paris, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So... Weak economic data out of the UK today. Um, the, the car sector is continuing to face uh, some significant headwinds on the supply chain. Uh, you've also got a service sector that just isn't picking up in the way that we thought that it was. Uh, you've got a, a, an ECB meeting coming up Thursday. There's a, it's a kind of growth shock generated out of the Ukrainian war that is going to be really difficult for the ECB to navigate. Uh, we've got PMI data slowing down in Europe. Uh, but then you've got this kind of the situation in the United States where inflation is, is expected to remain super hot. You've got CPI data out tomorrow, expected to come in circa 8.4%. Then you've got PPI data coming out uh, Thursday. That's factory gate inflation that's expected to be north of 10%. Eddie, this is the challenge, isn't it? You just... I'm looking at the euro today, I think it's fascinating to see what's happening here. You could see this real divergence. The United States economy humming along really nicely, but with really high inflation. The Fed's going to have to stomp on that. Here in Europe, we're already seeing significant signs of a growth slowdown. It's starting to smell like stagflation in Europe. It definitely is, right? Europe has a very different set of challenges. Now, first of all, I, I, just in the UK economy, when you look at this data, this data set at the moment feels a lot more lumpy than it traditionally is, right? December, we it, we were in contraction. Then January, 0.8% uh, expansion. Then February, back to 0.1% in the disappointment. But when I look at the forward-looking data, when I look at the PMIs that have come in recently that is telling us something about March already and is starting to look forward to April, that those data sets to me say that Europe is slowing down even as inflation you know, heats up. And, and that, that's really difficult for the central bankers, as you say. Are they really willing to hike rates and risk a housing market sell-off yep. right at the moment when, you know, growth is starting to slow? Are, are they willing to, to take on the consumers 
in that way. And I'm not sure that they are in Europe. But that, but that, that generates said, a huge, Eddie, that generates a huge problem. And you're seeing, starting to see that in the currency market. The, the Fed's on rails. The Fed is clearly going to step on the brake pretty hard. It's going to raise rates aggressively. If Europe doesn't do that and the currency market kind of takes that on board, you could see, and people are talking about parity euro dollar here. Oil mm. is priced in dollars. And mm. as a result of which, this energy shock is only going to be compounded by the fact that we are going to see a significantly weaker currency, which is going to make the cost of living squeeze worse and the inflation narrative even more difficult. And if I had to guess, if I had to guess, I think the, 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 the ECB and probably the BOE will probably err on the side of being a little bit too hawkish on all of this, right? They don't want to, they don't want to create demand destruction. They don't want to go too hot. But at the same time, I think there's a view that the last uh, 10 or so years of abnormal monetary policy and, and, and extremely low um, interest rates in Europe has put their banks and, and, and a lot of their pension funds and, you know, a large swathes of the industry under pressure. And I think they would like to get to back to something like normal. And I think they're going to use this window to do that. But at the same time, it's going to have further growth implications. And the one that I am watching more than anything else is housing markets because housing markets are still yeah. doing fantastically well but if you start slamming on the brakes the consumers will cut back on their spending absolutely um i, I can't remember the last time housing the housing market in the uk went down i no. think it was probably in the late 80s is certainly how it feels <laughs> like you've seen a few wobbles between now and then but but it's a huge supporter uh, of certainly demand. It has a industrial kind of component to it because obviously uh, you're bringing in uh, a lot of people, a lot of trades. That market is mm. very tight in terms of the labor story. I, it would be a... I, I, and the government's basically on the demand side has supported this for a really long time. So, yeah, mm. I, just, I don't know what the implications of a housing market slowdown would actually be. I, 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 I haven't seen one for so long. We haven't, we, and we haven't got one now. We haven't got one now. But, but, but if they no, start definitely. slamming on the brakes for the economy, you know, I think this is a, this is potential i think what we're seeing now is manufacturing being the wild card we're seeing you know manufacturing struggling to get uh to get to get goods in from china raw materials in from yep. other places and 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 that's just make it really difficult to keep the economy going and produce the goods that people at this moment Absolutely. in time yep. still want to buy Eddie, uh, we should probably talk about the kind of the Ukrainian impact and all of this as well. There's an energy factor, which is huge. Uh, we'll get an update on what's happening uh, with the situation in Ukraine in just a moment. The Ukrainians, once again, pleading for more and more weapons. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So European Union nations, European Union leaders calling for more weapons, including armoured vehicles and tanks, to be shipped to Ukraine as soon as possible. Poland's prime minister talking about the fact that Europe could see its biggest tank battle since the Second World War, which ironically was fought between the Germans and the Russians at Kursk. The Austrian Chancellor has travelled to Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin. Uh, a lot of mixed feelings about that. So what comes next? And is this increasingly looking like a proxy war now within Ukraine? Well, let's figure out what is happening here. Let's get an update. Uh, Bloomberg News' executive editor for international government, Ros Matheson, joining us on the line. Ros, let's talk a little bit about what is going on on the ground. We now have a, a, an expectation growing that we are going to be seeing uh, a new front being launched by the Russians within days. Uh, it is expected to deliver some ferocious fighting. Europe is pouring weapons into the region. This increasingly 
looks like a proxy war. This increasingly looks like NATO weapons fighting Russian weapons. How big a problem is this? Well, Europe is taking the, the decision, it seems here, that it won't be that much of a problem. That for weeks, uh, European nations have been cautious about the kind of equipment that they would send into Ukraine for fear that it would draw the ire of Russia and be seen to be a direct confrontation with Russia. Now you're seeing the realisation that, that almost seven weeks in, that sanctions haven't changed the course of the war. They're not changing uh, the calculus of the Russian president. And therefore, the only thing that will divert the course of the war is what happens on the ground. And that's the success, really, of the Ukrainian military against Russia. And we've seen that so far in the north already. And the fact that Russia has had to change course and focus on the east. So greater willingness on the part of European nations to send in what you think of as more offensive equipment, particularly tanks and, and armoured vehicles and further missiles and so on, still drawing the line at fighter jets, uh, but willing to consider much else and saying, well, that's the only thing that's going to change the course of the war. And we're taking the, the bet this time that it won't at least draw a direct conflict between us and Russia. I struggle to see what the best case scenario is in, in, in Ukraine. I struggle to see what a good outcome looks like at, at this stage and, and, and how it is that we get there. What do you think European leaders will be happy with? What sort of outcome or what sort of off-ramps are there for Putin here? There are very few good outcomes in any of this, really, for, for anybody. But it seems to be really a race against time. And that's the calculation that probably Ukraine and the EU and the US are taking because what they need to do is Ukraine doesn't need to just defend territory, it needs to take it back. And that's particularly the case in the east and the south. And if you let Russian troops really bed down, then become entrenched, then they occupy that territory and you'll never get them out again. And that makes it extremely difficult in any sort of future peace talks or so on because Ukraine can't be seen to be ceding territory. So the real thing here is you've got a short window of time before Russia really kind of dominates that area potentially to push them back out. Uh, and that would allow Ukraine to negotiate from a much more stronger position with Russia. So the worst-case scenario is that Ukraine has to negotiate with Russia the reality that Russia is in certain parts of its territory and it won't leave again, and that's a significant slice of eastern Ukraine down through the south, which enables that land bridge from Crimea through to Russia. And once they're there, they occupy it. Whatever you want to call it, they're not going to leave again. And so that's really the calculus is about time here. As you say, there does seem to be a bit of a duration mismatch. Sanctions aren't delivering the returns that West, the West certainly hoped that they would. Is that because sanctions have failed? Is that because sanctions haven't worked yet? Or is it because the West hasn't gone far enough, particularly Germany hasn't gone far enough uh, in delivering the sanctions that everybody else hoped would be delivered, i.e. energy sanctions? Well, that's right. Aside from energy, there's not really much else to sanction. Um, these are unprecedented penalties that have come on the Russian establishment, on the economy and on the Russian consumer. Uh, the thing that's left on the table still is, of course, gas. But what we've seen so far is that there's enough demand from elsewhere in the world. There are a load of countries that haven't signed up to sanctions who are willing to take Russian energy. Would that be enough to defray it if Europe says we don't want your Russian energy anymore? In the end, it just seems to be that, that the Russian president has decided that he's willing to take the squeeze on his economy, the pain on his people because he really wants what he wants 
from Ukraine and who's willing to tolerate that, as long as the Russian people are willing to tolerate it and you don't see some kind of uprisings and, you know, escalate inside Russia, then sanctions have a very limited impact on the course of the war inside Ukraine. That's just the reality. Over the longer term, of course, they'll have a really strong impact on the Russian economy, and that's sort of a different question in a way, is like what it does to Russia in the long term. But certainly right now, it's not changing his thinking inside Ukraine. Ros, is, is Europe just going to have to accept that, 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 from their perspective anyway, that Russia has become an unreliable energy supplier? But more broadly, for Europe, is this leading us to a, to a path of greater integration that we're seeing you know a joint foreign policy and 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 all of that so so how do you see this playing for europe in the long run well it's interesting because you're seeing obviously a very strong sense of unity and purpose uh, within the eu at the moment and also with the us and the uk but you're seeing states really join forces together uh, Below the surface, there are strong differences still, of course, on how far to go with sanctions and what kind of weaponry to send Ukraine. But in the longer term, you still also have fundamental differences between these European states about their governance, uh, about the future of Europe. It's kind of papered over in a way for now between, say, Poland and Brussels and Hungary and, and others. Um, but you're starting to see cracks already emerge in that. And maintaining unity within Europe is going to be a real challenge if the war continues for many months. You could start to see divergence of opinion about how to proceed next. So right now we're in a strong moment of unity, but it's going to be a real challenge for Europe to maintain that going forward because you've got long-running differences between these European states that are only just put on the back burner for now but are likely to come back uh, to the discussion in the coming months. Ros, great stuff as ever. Thank you very much indeed for updating us on the latest uh, Blue Bugs Ros Matheson on the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we'll talk about more of the financial aspects a little bit later on in the programme. The Russian railway default, a huge red flag uh, for the credit markets, the bond markets. We'll focus on that a little bit later on in the programme. Up next, we're going to turn back to what is happening with the dollar. We're going to talk more about what is happening. Uh, the buck goes from strength to strength to strength. CPI data out tomorrow as well. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Eddie van der Volk. Quick update on where we are with equity markets globally. The Nasdaq in the United States suffering today. The tech heavy index down by 1.9%. This is yields rise, bond yields rise uh, around the world, putting pressure uh, on those long duration tech assets. Uh, the S&P, though, is still down by 1.3% as well. So we are seeing a broad market sell off. Here in Europe, the FTSE 100 was uh, down by 7 tenths of 1%. The Cancarons in Paris, though, broadly positive. Uh, Emmanuel Macron did maybe slightly better than anticipated in the first round uh, of the French election. That seems to have given things a little bit of a lift. But more broadly, as I say, yields are higher. The German 30-year up by 12 basis points. Uh, you've got the uh, the US 30-year uh, up by 10 basis points. The UK 10-year up by 9 basis points. Oil under significant pressure today. Uh, we are seeing Brent crude down by one, sorry, down by four 
0.3%. Those are the markets. We'll come back. We'll talk more about what is happening in particular with the currency markets in just a moment. Uh, but first, let's get some headlines with Charlie Powell. Uh, thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Ukraine is pushing allied countries to seize and sell Russian assets, including oil tankers, so that the proceeds can be used to pay for the rebuilding of destroyed cities and infrastructure. Negotiations are underway with various countries for the seizure and sale of the assets. That according to the chief economic advisor to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. He declined to identify which countries he and his team have engaged, adding that several allied governments are preparing, quote, a mass attack on all major assets. The UK economy slowed more sharply than expected in February after storms hit construction work and supply chain delays held up output from car makers. The Office for National Statistics said the 0.1% expansion followed a robust 0.8% gain in January. Growth of 0.2% was forecast by economists. London's Heathrow Airport will be ramping up hiring, quote, as fast as possible after passenger numbers surged last month to the highest since the COVID pandemic began. Almost 4.2 million travelers passed through the facility during March, representing a more than 7 fold jump from a year earlier and a 45% increase from February's volume of 2.9 million. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Let's talk about what's happening in the currency markets. The dollar up for an eighth day. Uh, this as measured by the Bloomberg Dollar Index, which is up by 0.2%. It's mixed versus individual currencies. Uh, for instance, not much change today in euro dollar, but the dollar just continues to creep higher and higher. So does the buck stop here or does it continue to go even more, even, even more elevated uh, than we've seen thus far? Felice Morantz uh, joins us now from our Markets Live team. Uh, of course, we're alongside Eddie van der Vals. Um, Felice, let's talk about this. What is driving the dollar's ascendancy and is there much more gas in the tank? Hi, thank you for having me. There are definitely expectations that there's more gas in the tank, primarily because of the Fed. Uh, you know, they say don't fight the Fed. That's applicable here to the dollar. And that seems to be what's really propelling the rise. Police, but, you know, we've, we've just been talking before the break a little bit about, about Russia and about how aggressively the U.S. has used sanctions, um, particularly around the dollar and the access to Russian reserves and so on against Russia. Is there a sense that, and, and certainly there's been a discussion around this, there's a lot of investors or a lot of um, worry in the market that the U.S. is, in effect, undermining the role of the dollar in the global economy. Have you heard from investors? What, what, do, you, what do they think about this? That has definitely been a very interesting debate. There have been questions about what might cause a, a tipping point, what might be an inflection point that would further hasten the decline of the dollar as a world currency. However, we are seeing in our Markets Live survey, which uh, surveyed hundreds of investors, professionals, mostly professionals, and some retail investors, that there is a lot of confidence in the dollar and that these sanctions will not hasten that move. I think part of what's going on is the sense that the reason you can have these sanctions is because of the power of the dollar. And there is a sense that if not now, when? When is the time to use that power? If it can be used in the current circumstances, I believe that's generally seen as a positive. 
Okay. Uh, Eddie, isn't it, what you're talking about is a long-term story. And, and mm. maybe ultimately at some point we do see the dollar's strength, the mm. the supremacy of, of the greenback starting to fade. But it's not yet. And in the meantime, basically, you've got a U.S. economy that is really strong. It's got an inflation issue. The Fed's going to have to raise rates aggressively. And everybody else is slowing down. The Chinese are slowing down. Europe is slowing down. And that's just going to, that's just going to widen out the differential. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But isn't it just that that's, what you're talking about is something of a much longer term story? Oh, absolutely. It is a longer term story. And I think you're right. In the short term, there's there's really two things that are playing for the dollar, right? It's whether the dollar is is, is, is acting right now as a haven asset or is it purely acting, you know, on rates differentials? Because the one might you, you might see, you know, investors pulling away from the dollar as a haven if the if the global economy, you know, yeah. remains robust, even as, as, as central banks uh, raise rates. But at the same time, if the Fed is able to rate hike rates faster than everybody else, then, of course, you know, that that just makes the dollar so much more attractive from a carry perspective. Felice, what's what's your sense? Are, are, are people interested in the dollar mainly as a, as a haven here? Well, I agree with what you just said, Eddie, 100%. Also, I would add that China's COVID situation is playing a role right now. Uh, as uh, our perceptions about what the Chinese government may need to do to try and stimulate growth there. Uh, I think, and again, in our in our Markets Live survey, you did see a strong sense of support for the dollar. Most people thought that the dollar was going to keep climbing in the current quarter. That is the second yep. quarter. You're overwhelmingly seeing that the dollar is king. How, uh, so how far does it go? What are people saying in terms of how far this move could go? I heard some people talking, excuse me, <clears throat> about about parity with the euro. Well, in our particular survey, we didn't ask about how far it can go. But there are so many complicated, complicating factors right now, given uh, the war in Europe and the COVID situation, the China lockdown, the CPI coming out, inflation in the U.S. There are a lot of risk factors that investors have to balance right now. Doesn't it make you a little bit nervous, Felice? Everybody's on the same side of that trade. Doesn't that make you a little bit nervous? Don't you think, look, if everybody's already in and already long on the dollar, perhaps now's the time to get out? I personally don't think that's the case, given the that the Fed has just started its extraordinary rate hike cycle. You're seeing talk of very aggressive moves, and you're seeing inflation at rates that, that we haven't seen for decades. So if you look at what the Fed may be poised to do, it makes sense to me that the dollar would be strengthening. Felice, we'll leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Felice Morantz joining us from our M Live team, our Market Live team, where she's an editor. Really fantastic survey. Really worth checking out uh, some of the uh, some of the responses that we've been getting uh, and pulling it together and trying to get a really good idea of what the investment community thinks right now. Uh, we get CPI data out tomorrow from the United States. Uh, later in the week, we get uh, PPI data, factory gate inflation data as well. Uh, and then we're going to hear Thursday from the ECB, which I think is going to be fascinated really caught between a rock and a half place right now the growth slowdown being caused by the war in ukraine uh, plus high energy prices leading to inflation how is the ecb going to balance those two factors out uh, i think is going to be one of the real tales of this week plenty more still to come up next we're going to talk about what's happening with russian railways this is bloomberg
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio, 40 minutes past the hour. Now, one of the implications of the sanctions that are being applied to Russia is that many Russian companies are struggling to pay their debts and pay their dues. And we're starting to see that resulting in defaults. They have the money. They just can't get that money through the financial plumbing system to the people that are meant to get it. And as a result of which, we are starting to get defaults. And the expectation is that we're going to see many more. Uh, The company that operates the Russian rail system, Russian railways appropriately called, has now been ruled in default uh, by a derivatives panel after missing uh, such a bond interest payment. Basically, it's the first decision since Russia was slapped with all the sanctions that it's been hit with as a result uh, of the Ukrainian conflict. Now, let's bring in now uh, Bloomberg News leverage finance reporter Laura Benitez. Laura, just talk us through about talk us through what is happening in particular with reference to Russian railways. Uh, it has the money to pay, but it can't. So we now have a, def- a default. Is this actually a default? Hi there. That's absolutely right. So earlier today, we found out there was a failure to pay event on Russian rail. Um, As you mentioned, it's the first of its kind since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So all eyes are on this particular event and what that might mean for other corporates and especially the sovereign as well, whether that might be the next one to default. Um, And as you mentioned as well, you know, this isn't because corporates and governments don't want to pay or can't pay. It's because the money is actually stuck in the plumbing or there's some compliance or regulatory issues with the banks in terms of processing the payments. It's a very, very unusual situation that we're seeing. I love how 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 it's almost like we planned this the the role of the dollar and you know how how the the, the sanctions are making it difficult for companies there you know to 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 pay these debts. But here's my big question from all of this: right, is there a risk of a series of defaults? If you see, we've now seen the first Russian company default on this debt. Is there a risk that this has implications for non-Russian companies who are not getting their funds, they're not getting the dollars they expected, they've got debts that they have to pay? Is there a risk of a domino effect that will affect European hedge funds and European pension funds and the like? I think there's definitely potential for this to kind of roll on into different markets, into different countries. Um, I mean, we're just now seeing the impacts of, of the war unfold, and it's been four, five, six weeks. So I think this is def- definitely something that we'll be living with for quite some time. And we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of how this will play out in the markets and how it will affect um, hedge yeah. funds, investors. Exactly. I think it's, um, it's twofold. Look, are creditors actually asking for the money? They, they can see what's going on in front of them here. They probably don't want to see these companies being put into default. Do they, what, what are investors actually saying about this? Are they, are they calling for the cash or are they actually generally quite happy to wait? It's a really good question. So what we've been looking at in terms of the story today with Russian Rail was the CDS, and that is contracts that insure against the default. So right. investors who might own the bonds will also buy these contracts to protect themselves. It's, it's an insurance policy. So what we're looking at in terms of this, this default that we've been discussing is on the CDS side. On the bond side of things, it's a bit more complicated because it's very unclear at this stage you know, what bondholders can enforce. Um, it's very tricky because law firms will be very reluctant to get involved in terms of restructuring event. So there's a, a, a lot of question marks, I think, in that respect. But the CDS, at least for now, is slightly more straightforward, I think, in terms of the payout. Okay. Laura, I'm a little bit surprised we haven't seen more defaults and seen them sooner, given the scale of the sanctions, and particularly the financial sanctions 
and and the access to you know dollar-based markets that uh, Russian companies are facing. Are you surprised that we haven't seen more uh, defaults? And 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 why haven't we seen more? Absolutely. It's a really good question. And I think at the beginning of all of this, um, especially in early March, I think the market was very much braced for a wave of defaults. We were expecting Russia and Russian corporates to perhaps not want to pay or to delay, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, they're sanctioned and there's a lot of complicated processes that they're having to go through. But what they have done is that they've very much tried to pay and have been paying. So I think the market is taking that in, absorbing that, but now, of course, we're stuck with the plumbing. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's very unusual in the sense that this could be a big, you know, it, it could trigger a big wave of default, but not because the company or because sovereign can't pay. It's because, it's because of some unusual process. Absolutely. We're going to leave it there. Laura, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Um, I want to talk about Elon Musk. I want to try and figure out what his strategy is when it comes to Twitter. Because to be honest, I'm pretty confused. A few days ago, the markets go crazy. Elon Musk declares a passive stake in Twitter. He buys some stock. He's bought some stock. Then he says it's active. Then he says he's going to take a seat on the board. Today, he says he's not going to take a seat on the board. Maybe after the fact that he realised that he was probably limited in the amount of stock that he could buy. The whole situation seems slightly crazy to me. Let's try and get some sense. Let's try and make some sense of it. Bloomberg Quick Takes, Alex Webb, joining us now on the line. Alex, does anybody have any clarity as to what is happening here? Does Elon Musk know what he wants to do with Twitter? I would suspect that maybe he does not. I think that, you know, given the, the back and forth we've seen over the past week and week or so, he came in, you know, announced that he had this stake, said he was going to be a passive investor. Uh, then Twitter sort of suggested that he was going to join the board. They said he would join the board. He changed the filing, so they said he'd be an active investor. But I think that as part of joining that board process, he had to commit to working in the interest of the other shareholders and not expand his stake above 14.9%. Well, you know, that constricts him to, to a great extent. And if he does have other intentions, then maybe he, not, he won't be able to do them if he's got to work for other investors. He must have some sort of motivation of his own, which he hadn't quite realized, or I don't know, he agreed to these conditions he subsequently realized he doesn't want to. Alex, I absolutely buy that view because, because I mean, you know, with, for, for, for a lot of investors, a billion here, a billion there would be a lot of money. For Elon Musk, it doesn't really matter that much, right? He's got a fan, fantastically large portfolio. So it's plausible that he didn't think through all of the implications of taking a 10% stake in Twitter. But here's what I want to ask you. Do you think that there is a, there's, there's a case that maybe his, 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 um, his investors at Tesla and at SpaceX and so on pushed back against this and said, listen, you're spreading yourself too thin. And would Musk pay attention if they did? I find it hard to believe that, uh, you know, he would listen to any investors in, in those companies. You know, we, I don't think we heard that necessarily from, from Tesla investors. Uh, and, you know, that's the only publicly traded company. The case has been made that perhaps the interest in Twitter is about promoting those Two companies and Tesla in particular, because he generates a huge amount of earned media, essentially free publicity um, from his Twitter posts. I think they even put it at one stage in an SEC filing that 
it was listed as a risk that somehow he would, not necessarily the most recent SEC filings, but some time ago, that the risk that he would not be able to generate as much free publicity would be detrimental to Tesla's business. Well, you know, he's ensuring perhaps through a stake in Twitter that that remains a mouthpiece for him. And it's in, therefore, those companies' interest that he retains it. Um, I think the flip side might also be true, though, that does te- is would Twitter be getting the majority of his attention? Almost certainly not, given these other huge companies he's running. Does he want to make Twitter better? Does he want to make Twitter better for everybody? Does he want to make Twitter better for him? I think that that is basically, you know, therein lies the rub. That he wants to make, he has perhaps some views on where he thinks Twitter should go, views on free speech, on an edit button, and and perhaps some other things he hasn't quite, uh, or he hasn't made public yet. But of course, again, that ties to Eddie's point. This is a very small part of his portfolio, two and a half billion um, dollars, if that's how much it cost him, is less than 1% of his net worth. That means that it's almost certainly not a financial investment. He's not doing this to enrich him, to enrich himself. It's therefore about influence. It's about changing Twitter or, or retaining a Twitter that he likes the, the vision of. Therefore, it's about his agenda and not necessarily about generating value for other shareholders. And that was one of the conditions of joining the board. If you join the board, you have to represent the interests of all shareholders, not just your own views. And so in that sort of nexus lie the bones of contention. But is Twitter a good investment right now, Alex? Is, is Twitter a good buy at this point? Do investors like it? I mean, Twitter, it, you know, it is a far smaller company than Facebook. It's about it's a 30-something billion um, dollar company, or as I think probably has enjoyed a bit of a boost since Elon came in, but it is it's about 5% of the market cap of Facebook, but it trades at a far higher multiple. It trades at something like 60 times forward earnings. Facebook trades at 15 times forward earnings. So the, the likelihood of getting a huge amount of upside from Twitter, unless something cataclysmic changes in their earnings over the next two or three years, yeah. it's quite hard to see how you generate that value. Is this a take, Private? I, what, what, how far could this go? How far could his interest extend? I mean, the fact that Elon has now decided not to join the board has meant that those whispers that maybe he is looking to take it private have, you know, grown slightly in volume. It is a long way to go just yet. This is As much as Elon has a lot of net worth, he doesn't have a lot of capital. You know, he has to realize that capital somehow by yeah. selling down Tesla, um, Tesla shares or, or, or raising d- uh, debt against that as collateral. Now, that's clearly not something you... That would require a process. You have to speak to banks and so on and so forth. So, you know, he could do it, but we're some way away, and hopefully these aren't famous last words, um, from that happening. Things are moving pretty fast around here, to quote Ferris Bueller, though. Yeah, and look, there's nothing stopping him from doing that. I guess the question is, though, if he used to sell down his Tesla stake in order to buy shares in Twitter, yeah. you know, what does that say to Tesla investors? Is, that, is the signal he's sending that Twitter is a better investment than Tesla? That's not something necessarily that you'd be wanting to hear as a Tesla investor. So, you know, does Elon care about that? Probably not. You know, given the scale of his stake, it, it, it is sort of a rounding error. But it's, you know, there are every, every move he makes is going to raise just as many questions as it answers. Mm. And every move Elon Musk makes attracts a lot of attention. So if this is a take private play, does his high profile go against him? Will it mean that he will be betting or, or bidding against his own fan club? I, I, I don't know. Look, if he's if there if a lot of people are bought into te- into Twitter stock 
because of the Elon factor in the recent, in the past week or so, then, you know, if they then make a quick buck because he buys it at 20% premium to where the share price is now, you know, they're, they're going to be happy. We'll leave it there, guys. Really interesting chat. Uh, I suspect we probably haven't heard the last of this. In fact, we almost certainly haven't heard the last of it. Uh, Alex, thank you very much indeed. Alex Webb joining us on Twitter. Eddie's going to be back tomorrow. We'll do it all again. Hope you've enjoyed listening to the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.